Today is Orphan Sunday, which I don't know where the tradition of this began. Colette, are you going to share with that? Colette's going to share that in a moment. But we're going to give some definition to a couple of relationships that we have this morning as we are engaging with widows and with orphans. Colette is going to, she's with Wiffen, she's going to share about Wiffen, what's going on in Kenya also. But just, uh, I looked this up this morning, so since 2014, our congregation, we've given $33,000 to Wiffen, and the specific thing that we support with Wiffen is the training of widows in regards to hospitality in their culture there in Zambia, and again, Coletto gives some definition to this. And our relationship there with Meshach's dad, Michael, in Kenya, so dealing with the pastors and churches and widows and orphans. Since 2017, we've given $33,500 to what's going on there. And just to give you context, that's since 2014, that's roughly 50% of what we give, which we tithe. So all the, the general contributions that come into our congregation, we turn around and we grant 10% out. So this, this uh, covers between these two ministries roughly 50% of what we're granting out to different organizations, whether it's for individuals in need, whether this is international missions, whether this is local missions. So these are substantial relationships for us as a congregation. Um, so Colette's going to come up and give all kinds of clarity to what I just rambled about. So welcome, Colette. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, Date-wise, um, 2014 was prior to when I was actually hired by Wiffen. Um, probably around that time frame is when Kevin Jones, one of our founding board members, came to Calvary and spoke and shared with the church about Wiffen, which was birthed out of a widow and her three orphan children. Um, her husband passed away in the late 1990s, and what was common then in Africa, it's now less common and now illegal in areas, is something called property grabbing. So when her husband passed away, the husband's family had rights to the house and all of the belongings in the home. And so Kunda was left destitute and homeless with three little girls. And Kevin and his wife Lisa here in the United States had met the father, Pastor Timothy, when he came to um, speak about his mission. He began to sponsor what he was doing. When he passed away and Kevin learned what had happened, he shifted his finances to support the girls to go to school. Because in Africa, going to school costs money. Um, all the children need to have school fees paid for, uniforms paid for, books paid for to go to school. And specifically in Zambia, you need to learn English because that's the national language of the country to get a job. So therefore, going to school is really critical because that's where you're going to learn English. So Kunda, taking the finances that she had in Zambia, didn't just provide for her family. She began to provide for other widows and other orphans in her community, knowing that she wasn't the only one who was suffering. And so Wiffen was birthed out of this vision that this one widow had caring for her three orphan girls. Her oldest daughter um, is actually receiving a doctorate out of Boston right now. So the story is just an incredible story. They're, her middle daughter, Abby, actually works for Wiffen Zambia in our child sponsorship program. And Zambia has grown from one widow and three orphans to over a thousand people that we serve every single day in the compounds of Indola. And as Kevin shared with your church four or five years ago, 
Meshach Samani heard this message and thought, that's what I want to do in my town. Really, I think he'd been thinking about it for a long time. The Lord had put it on his heart to go back and to care for the widows and orphans in his village of Bungoma. But he needed a resource and a tool to help him fulfill that vision that God had given him. And he saw that happening through Wiffen. So when I was hired in 2016, that's when I was introduced to Meshach, and we developed a relationship, a friendship, to see how we could bring Bungoma, Kenya, under the umbrella of Wiffen. And so for the last two years, now we're going on three, Bungoma is now a, has a partnership with Wiffen. So we're not just Wiffen Zambia, we are now Wiffen Kenya. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be bringing on some children in Uganda. Now, what I've learned is, is that Bungoma is, is very different than the city of Ndola. Ndola is very urban. It's, it's a city. So there's all kinds of things right there within the city. But just outside the city are compounds, very compressed living. So they're, they're mud huts with tin roofs, and you have tens of thousands of people living within the compounds. So when I go to, to Zambia, I can visit all of the sponsored children Within an, within an hour, I can see probably all the kids that go to one of our schools. When I traveled to Bungoma a year and a half ago, I got in a car and I spent an entire day seeing about eight. <laughs> because the villages there are much more spread out and they're farm villages. And so it took a little while for us to see all the kids. It would be a lot more challenging for us to just immediately build a school there because the kids come from far and wide to get to that school. So we really began to kind of discuss with Pastor Michael the vision of what he was thinking for the village of Bungoma. And so for right now, there are 28 children that are being sponsored, a majority of them from your church, are sponsoring these children to go to government schools. And we still have another 15 that we would love to see sponsored before the end of the year. But I know that there's some slides that um, were put together for me to share with you today. Um, are we good? So that's our theme verse, James 1.27. And I think it really keeps us grounded in making sure that everything that we're doing is caring for widows and orphans. You can go to the next one I've kind of shared. So, oh, this, I didn't even see this picture. This is a great one. So this is um, about a year and a half ago. I got to go with, uh, with Pastor Blake and his daughter, Trinity. Um, it was my first time. It was Pastor Blake's second. Um, you have an amazing pastor. Do you know that? Um, he, he was, it was an honor to travel with him because he remembers names and people, and, which shows me that he has a heart for valuing people. And that he really cares. And so I just was, I, I just was blessed. So that was our time. And that's Pastor Michael and his wife, Christine. And they're the ones that are leading the organization in Bungoma. And so his vision has been planting churches. So Wiffen in Zambia, we planted schools. And through the schools, we're, we're ministering to widows and orphans in training centers. Pastor Michael's vision has been church plants. And within the churches, he's identified orphans that need care. Because again, they need assistance in being able to go to school. Being able to go to school gives them the training that they need for life skills for sustainable living. And that's kind of our heart is, is that they are trained well to go out and to take care of their families, but more importantly, that they know Jesus. And so they're having that discipleship right alongside within the church. So this is uh, the family. Wow, there's a lot of extra pictures in here. You can keep going. See, farmland, it was just spread out. You can keep going. 
You can keep going. Love Trinity. This is one of the fa- that was one of the families there that is sponsored. Um, she's a widow that's in the sewing program. Now we're in one of the homes. That's Bob and the child that he sponsors was in the previous picture, so we got to meet a lot of the sponsor children. I'll just leave this here for right now, and I'll just finish up. Um, because interestingly enough, this is a different slideshow than the one they sent me. <laughs> so I'm just going to share a little bit more and then close up. Our heart is to see another 15 kids sponsored um, in the next couple of months for Whiffin Kenya. And then we're going to start with the sponsorship for the Bungoma children that um, are actually in Uganda. So not actually in Bungoma, but over in Uganda. And there's another 15, 20 children that we would like to see sponsored there in 2020. And school fees begin in January. So it is, it is crucial and critical for us to get these children sponsored, which is $39 a month. Um, and I can give you um, the assistance in the back at the table, um, as well as Tony can help answer some questions and Josh. The other heartbeat behind um, what we do is serving the widows. And I realize today is Orphan Sunday, and so we're wanting to stand for orphans. But I also want to recognize the widows. And what they are learning is sewing, a skill that they've picked up. And we'll be going in January, and some ladies on the trip, we're going to be teaching some sewing lessons to improve the skills. Um, I have um, some ornaments that they made last year. And you can see um, their heart behind learning. They really want to get better, but you also see some, some errors. So there's some things that we want to go and, and give them some, some skills to make them stronger and better at sewing. But I'd love to give you one of those, those ornaments that they made to pray for them and to, rem- and to remember them in this year ahead, that the Lord would really um, prepare them to be able to make more items that they can sell locally for sustainability, as well as be able to bring to the U.S. to sell upon their behalf. But another thing that, that Pastor Blake does is, is it's the, the pastors, and he'll be holding a conference in January when we travel to Kenya again, and really discipling and, and strengthening their ministry within the church. Because for Wiffen, that's how the children are learning about Jesus is through the pastors. So it is just as critical to be doing training amongst them as they lead their flock, which is specifically the widows and then the orphans that are in there. So the partnership at Calvary Chapel is really incredible. You've been supporting Zambia and the hospitality program for several years. Thank you for your third $33,000. It has blessed so many youth that are graduating out of the hospitality program. There's a several that will be going on attachments, which is internships come January. So they'll go out across the country of Zambia in hopes of getting a job. So you can be praying for them. And then we'll bring in a new class in February. So again, thank you for having us today. If there's anything that I can do in answering questions, I'm going to be in the back. We're selling some jewelry. We have uh, child sponsorship packets if you're interested. And then be praying for us. We leave on January 3rd. We'll be gone for a little less than two weeks. We're going to get to connect with all the orphans. We're going to get to connect with the widows. And then Pastor Blake and a team will be leading um, the pastors in a pastoral conference. So thank you again. Biggest thing to convey out of this, I didn't know that, uh, what's her name, Kuna? Kunda. Kunda. 
daughter getting her doctorate degree, you know, Meshach, our relationship with him. He was a world vision child. And here he is as a, uh, now a doctorate, a PhD in political science, and he's a professor at, uh, what was it, Cal State San Marco. Again, just the, the, what God has done with a life that the world would say is insignificant, that God values and how he's led his steps over time. These are relationships for us that it's not, we're not talking about the masses, we're not talking about these abstract numbers and these abstract souls, these are personal relationships. When we go there, we are staying on Meshach's family's property. These are our brothers and our sisters. He has, I think he's got nine siblings. There's nine, there's nine total, so he has eight siblings. Um, they're all engaged in the ministry there that's going on in Mongoma. And our relationship with uh, his dad uh, began as Christ Foundation Ministries. That's the legal entity. They have now become Calvary Chapel Bungoma through the relationships. They're fellowshipping with the Calvaries that are there in Kenya. They're fellowshipping with the, with the Calvaries that are there in Uganda. Um, the, the lines in the sand are arbitrary. That's something that the United Kingdom did. Um, so the tribe that Meshach is a part of is on both sides of the border. So this is where all those family relationships that are coming through. Uganda is drastically more poor than, uh, than Kenya is. So we've helped build churches. Some of them have been built with bricks. Some of them have been built with mud and with tin roofs. So this, this is long term. This is something that has started small and it continues to grow as the Lord continues to bless. So this is, again, this is a, as, as we, there's a thousand different things that we could do today to engage in missions. Just as, as if we got on the internet and just looked up all the different opportunities, there'd be a thousand worthwhile things that we could do today to invest in. But this is the relationship that God brought. So this isn't, some, this isn't man's heart. This isn't our idea. This is, Lord, show us what you want us to do to reach out into your name. And this is what the Lord has provided. So it's awesome. Um, we are going in January. I think we leave on January 3rd. Uh, total, there's seven of us going. And again, just be praying, actively praying. I have a lot of study to do personally. Just, you know, life is busy. This is a busy time of year. So I have a lot of preparation to do. There's a lot of ducks to get in a row for all of us who are going. But ultimately, that we would go and that we would be a blessing, that we would strengthen the church of Jesus Christ, that we would strengthen the pastors, that we would strengthen these men and these women that are part of the congregations, that we would be a help and a benefit to the widows, that we would show these children that they are loved and that they are valued. When you sit in the stories of these women and these widows, she didn't share that much, but uh, in that presentation, there were a bunch of pictures of the gals. You sit in their stories. These are their husbands that died, whether through disease or through accidents. One of these women, her, son, her, her husband was electrocuted. Just, you know, doing electrical in a building, and he was electrocuted, dead. Two small children. These are the lives who we're stepping into, not just with money, but we're stepping into with the gospel. We're stepping into with love. We're stepping into with not a handout, but truly providing help that's going to help these women be sustainable in their own culture. So tremendously important and what a, what a privilege it is to serve. All right, Acts chapter 6. What we're talking about in Acts this morning as we continue on in Acts 
has much of the same flavor of what we've been talking about this morning, so I love the timeliness of God. We're going to cover the entire chapter, so I'll keep it short and to the point this morning, but let's, let's pray before we get into the word. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, and once again, we come before you with boldness, Lord. Boldness of faith, boldness of just confidence in who you are, that you are a God. You are the being who has created the heavens and the earth. You've revealed yourself to us. You've called me, Lord. You've spoken my name. You've drawn me to you. You stare down into my broken and my sinful life and you didn't curse me and you didn't condemn me but you provided salvation in your son. You provide relationship with you today. You provide relationship with others, Lord, who love you and who want nothing more than to honor you and cherish you. And that's why we're here this morning, Lord. We open up your word so that we can see you, so that we can know you, so that we can understand you, because we want our hearts to swell with love for you. And out of that love, Lord, we want to serve you with our minds and our hearts and our hands and our feet and our finances, our time, all that we have, Lord, we lay at your feet. And we ask that that you would bring yourself glory through all of these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's read through Acts chapter 6. Short chapter, it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, and Decanter, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of, the, of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia. If you mark in your Bible at all, I want you to circle Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Then they set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and law. For we have heard him say that, Je- that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs by which Moses, uh, customs which Moses delivered to us. 
And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. So if you remember where we finished up a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 5, we have the disciples are continuing to preach Jesus, salvation in the name of Jesus, repentance in the name of Jesus. They are witnesses of Jesus, promise of the Holy Spirit being given to those who obey them. This is agitating the religious leaders in the community, the Jewish religious leaders in the community. They're doing all this threatening. Didn't we command you not to teach in this name anymore? At the end, they beat them. Says that they rejoiced, the apostles, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And it says daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So this is the environment as we sit in the context of the early church this morning. We're sitting, in, we're sitting in a culture. So in this, we have this description. In those days, the number of the disciples is growing. So this isn't to be some, a term without meaning. A disciple is somebody who has fallen in love with Jesus Christ. This is, this is an individual and individuals who are responding to the person and to the work of who Jesus Christ is. And as you have the early church, the place where Jesus was crucified there outside the gates of Jerusalem, where he rose again from the dead, where he sent the Holy Spirit to promise upon the church there in chapter 2 of Acts, where the church was birthed, so to say. This, these believers, these witnesses that watched Jesus during his life, during his teaching, they witnessed his death, they witnessed his resurrection, they're preaching the good news of salvation deliverance from death, deliverance from sin in this man through faith in this man. And the community is growing. And the community is growing because as they're bearing testimony, they're saying we're eyewitnesses to this. And not only did we see these things with our own eyes, what we are witnessing to you, what we are telling you lines up with the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the community is growing. In this community, there is opposition coming against this community. So these are Jewish individuals ethnically these are jewish individuals religiously so in this as we're reading through these early chapters of acts we're watching everything new they're sitting in a community they don't have commentaries to go to they don't have a systematic theology to turn to they don't have 2000 years of church history to examine and to study they're living this out in the moment, in the very beginning, and they are engaged with God through his word. They are engaged with God through prayer. They are engaged in response to who Jesus is. So when it says disciples, there's some weight to these words. To turn away from Judaism, to turn away from their culture, and to turn to Jesus as Messiah, this costs them something culturally and personally. Beyond what most of us have to live with and when we say that we need to deny ourselves. We need to deny all that we are, all that we have, laid at Christ's feet. Different practical applications in our culture than in their culture. So when it's talking about the disciples, this is, a, this is a, the body of Christ that is growing. And it's not just being added to. There's multiplica multiplication because it's not just the apostles 
that are out there sharing the word, as people are responding, they're also going to their families. They're going to who they rub shoulders with in life. So the church is growing by multiplication. And that multiplication, when we have masses of people that come together, what do we have? We have logistic issues. We have administration issues. And that's what's going on here. But here's the culture issue that's going on. So there's grumbling and complaining going on behind the scenes. And this grumbling and complaining, it's not, um, it's not being handled in a way where here's an issue and it's being taken to the leadership and let's discuss this and let's work this out. It's grumbling and complaining that's going on behind the scenes. And the grumbling and complaining that's going on, this is, this is sitting in more racist issues and cultural issues uh, than anything else because you have the Hebrews and the Hellenists. So every single one of these individuals, by majority, for the most part, you're going to have some. We read about one guy who's a convert to Judaism, so he was a Gentile, converted to Judaism. But as a culture here in Jerusalem, 99.9% of these human beings are Jewish by their ethnicity. And even if within their ethnicity, they have all their divisions, just like we will have all of our divisions in our culture. The Hebrews, Paul calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? But Paul was born in Tarsus. He, that's, that's southern Turkey. He wasn't born in Israel. But his identification, his self-identification as a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm, a, I'm not just a Jew because I am a descendant of Jacob. I am a Hebrew culturally. I am obedient to the law. I'm obedient to the society that God commanded us to have according to the rules and regulations of the Old Testament set forth by Moses. For the Hellenists, they are also Jews. They are also ethnically descended from Jacob. But their culture has taken on the culture of Greece. So when Alexander the Great goes through and conquers this whole area a couple of hundred years prior to this, Greek culture becomes tremendously influential. The Greek language is the, the, you know, the spoken language. So for the Hellenists, more than likely, you know, Greek would be their mother tongue. For the Hebrews in this context, they're being identified as Hebrews. Aramaic would probably be their mother tongue. They would know each other's language, but there is a separation culturally. And in that separation culturally, there's rubbing because you're going to have some that are conservative religiously. You're going to have some that are liberal religiously. But what's going on in the church? So this is not just, they're not just Jews. They are Jewish Christians coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ with their own independent and cultural backgrounds. Does that make sense? So we look around this room. Every single one of us has come to Jesus through a cultural context, through an ethnic context. We have our individual stories that have brought us to this room this morning. And in some of those things, we can have a lot of tension. Not in this congregation, because we all love each other really well, which is awesome. But we have tension here. We rub each other wrong. And the rub that's going wrong here is that there is a legitimate neglect and this is, this is ignoring on purpose. The Jewish Hebrew Christians are ignoring the widows of Jewish 
Christian Hellenistic descent. Does that make sense? So just because they are different culturally, there's now a division in the body of Christ. And what we've already seen, this is, this is a strategy of Satan. He wants nothing more than to come into this place and cause division. He wants nothing more to come into your marriage, into your parental relationships, into your friendships, into your workplaces, and cause as much division and strife as possible. So in the early church, we're watching, we're watching threats from the outside. We watch the story in Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 where they're lying to the Holy Spirit. In that scene, we are told that it was Satan was the one that filled their heart to lie and causing this division in the body. And now here, they have this external persecution. The apostles were just beaten. And as the congregation has continued to grow, there's some neglect that's going on. Some of it's unintentional, some of it's intentional, and it rises up to the surface, it comes to the attention of the 12. So again, there's, there's cultural issues that are going on here. And when it talks about this neglect in the daily distribution, this is, this is their daily bread. So when we talk about widows, 1 Timothy chapter 5 gives us great instructions it says honor widows who are really widows these are women who are going to have no means to provide for their daily necessities when you think about what our daily necessities are we need to breathe we need to sleep we need rest we need uh, water we need food we need clothing these are the daily necessities the daily distribution uh, that is going on to take care of these widows. So it says, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Often we'll quote that verse and talk about just the, the need for a man to provide for his household. But in context, it's talking about sons and daughters providing for their aged mom who has no means of provision unless her children take care of her. If you don't do that, you've denied the faith. And again, what faith in Jesus is all about in regards to his heart, his nature, his character, what he's commanded us to do. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And these are the women that we're talking about. They're over 60 years old. They're, they're part of the number of widows who need to receive help from their brothers and sisters in Christ. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lost strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. In other, in other words, that this woman, don't bring a woman into this daily distribution where the congregation is supporting her unless she has this true and historical relationship with Christ. Refuse the younger widows. When they have begun to groan wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. 
a lot of this, there's cultural stuff, there's relationship with Christ stuff, there's relationship with the congregation. All these subjects are going on at the same time. These are complicated factors, not easy to paint with a broad brush. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house. Sounds like a wonderful life, huh? Our culture's different, so pay attention to the social, cultural issues that are going on. Give no opportunity to the adversary, to Satan, to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. So here there are real widows that are being ignored in this daily distribution, their daily bread that they are praying for and looking to God to provide. There is complaining going on because of the cultural issues between Hebrews and Hellenists. The complaining and the murmuring rises to the attention of the 12. So the 12 summon the multitude of the disciples, and this is what they're saying. It's not desirable. So in some, in, in how they're responding, it seems like the burden is being placed on the, the apostles, that they're the ones that need to do something about it. And they do because they represent the leadership. But they're saying it's not desirable, it's not acceptable, it is not pleasing to God that we should leave, which is literally that we should forsake and that we should leave behind the word of God to serve tables. So this isn't an attitude, this isn't holier than thou, this is just real life. There are so many hours in the day and you sit in the same 24 hours a day that I sit in and our lives are busy, they're full even, we, even, in our, even when we, have, we think we have free time, there's always a list of things that are left undone, whether it's in your relationship with the Lord, in your household, in, in work. There's always work to be done, right? There's always more. But here, the, the response is, it's not pleasing to you. It's not beneficial to you. It's not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to us as a community for us to leave our attention to the word. And remember, at the end of chapter 5, they're saying they're, they're going from house to house. Remember, the community is getting larger and larger. As they gather together, they don't have big buildings like we do. This is, this is the early church. They're meeting in homes. They're meeting in larger upper rooms. And the apostles, they're studying the word of God. They're praying. They're seeking the Lord. And they're going from house to house and they're teaching and they're preaching. They're engaged with what's going on in these households, knowing what's going on in the relationships, where people are doing good, where they're doing bad. This takes a lot of time. It takes a lot. Lord, give me discernment as we engage with other human beings. Now it's come to our attention that there's neglect going on in the body. This neglect is not right. So therefore, what's the solution? You choose from among yourselves seven men that you know that they have a good reputation. You, you, you know them. You see their lives. You see how they already are loving the Lord and serving the Lord. You see how they're interacting with their spouses and their own children, how they engage with the stranger, the lost. Find men that have a good reputation. There's a positive witness in regards to their life, who they are. You choose them. Make sure that they're filled with faith. And this, be, this idea of being filled with faith, it's not, this, it's not our faith that wells up from within. 
It's being obedient and submissive to who Jesus Christ is. When we talk about the faith, it is, it is wrapped around the definition of who Jesus is as God, who Jesus is as Christ, as Messiah. Make sure that these individuals, that they are submitted in love and in humility to the name and the person and the work and the heart and the compassion of who Jesus Christ is. Because if you put somebody in that position that doesn't have that kind of heart, the body's gonna get hurt. And not only that they are relying upon Jesus, but they have the skills, that they have the wisdom to actually take care of this. There's some people in this room you absolutely do not want handling finances. You may love Jesus, but you don't know how to balance a checkbook. And this, this is what serving tables means. The word tables here, this is dealing with finances. This is the money changers table. There's an administration responsibility that needs to occur with these women. Who are these women? There's going to be an official role. There's going to be somebody's taking track of when these women pass away, new women that are rolling onto the rolls. What's the budget? The funds that are laid at the apostles' feet in regards to the overall needs of the body. What's the budget that we have to take care of these widows? I have 100 bucks for a month. Well, beans and rice it is, right? You know, we, there has to be wisdom and administration. How long do these funds last? How many mouths need to be fed? That's what's the heart that is going on here. So this is pleasing to the early church. There's a ton of wisdom here. Satan is attempting to come in and cause division and cause strife and to cause a split. And here, again, I love this is an obedience to the word of God. I believe that this is coming out of these men's prayer life as the Holy Spirit is leading them and directing them. I think that the Holy Spirit is engaged in the overall body here in Jerusalem altogether that is there going and saying, I think Bob would be good and I think Jack would be good. And no, maybe not that. That the Holy Spirit is leading them in wisdom that they bring these seven men to the apostles and give this delegated uh, responsibility that these men, not only did they have, were they chosen, I think that they were called by God, I think that they were equipped by God to do this, I think that they were recognized by their community for the gifts that God had given to them, and they were willing to serve. This is what God is calling me to do. This is where I will stand for the name of Christ in service to the community. And again, these are, these, we all have busy lives, right? I think and I believe that every single one of these individuals already had a busy life. I think that this is something that's being added to their lives and their responsibilities that they already have. And they were willing to raise their hands and say, Lord, I trust you, I will serve you, and I will serve my brothers and sisters in this capacity. They are empowered they are commissioned in it they are accountable in this responsibility and it says ultimately that the church is growing as a result of these actions these seven men that are listed it's interesting every single one of them has a greek name so more than likely they are all from this category of the hellenists these christians they're being ignored from this particular cultural background that they now have their own representatives to make sure that their widows that are all part of the body together, that this segment isn't being ignored. One of the 
snapshots from this. It doesn't say it, but it ought to give us an idea of the size of the need. How, how, many, how many women could these, how many widows could these seven men see that their daily needs are being taken care of by the church? Um, how many widows does that include? I think it's a substantial amount. In Jerusalem, uh, within, within this culture and this time, Jews in their ethnicity and in their religious culture, the old wanted to come to Jerusalem to die in Jerusalem. Because that's where the Messiah is coming back. And you want to get resurrected from the holy place. And in fact, if you die in a foreign land, there's teaching of some rabbis that you roll underneath the ground all the way to Jerusalem. That when Messiah comes, you get resurrected from the holy land, from the promised land. There's a lot of weird teachings. But what that means is a lot of aged individuals move to Jerusalem, to this culture. This, is a, this causes culturally an abundance of widows just because of the social circumstances that are going on in this community. Those social circumstances are becoming part of the circumstances of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is growing together, processing through the change together in humility and love. Again, the context here is in Jerusalem. I love at the very end of uh, verse 7 there, it's talking about a horde, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Not just, I, just, I always find that uh, our response to who Jesus is, our response to the gospel, our response to this, this, the witness in regards to who he is, there's a receiving of him, but then there's this full surrender. I am obedient to the faith and what the faith means in regards to his nature, his character, his work, and how we respond to him. So widows are coming to him, the poor are coming to him, the rich are coming to him, priests are coming to him, all different people, and they're all rubbing together, being coming one in the body of Christ. And here's Stephen, verse 8, full of faith and power. He's doing these great wonders and signs among the people, just as the apostles were doing. Remember, this is a prayer of the church that God would stretch forth his hand and perform healings and signs and wonders to bear witness to the truth of what's being communicated about who he is. Not just the apostles, but here, another man, Stephen, full of faith, obedient to the faith full of power, the same power that Jesus promised to the disciples there in chapter one. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they would receive power to be witnesses. So not only is uh, Stephen engaged in the boring administration of finances and lists and keeping track of all this technical stuff, here are the same thing that he's, he's engaged in this incredible spiritual ministry that God is working through him in the culture, bearing testimony to the words that he is speaking. This synagogue of the freemen, this, uh, this uh, inscription has been found in archaeology. Um, there are 
I don't remember the source, but one of the sources say that there are 480, that at this time there are 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. So in these different synagogues, uh, again, they're going to have birds of a feather flock together, right? So as people come into Jerusalem, similar personalities, similar classes, similar backgrounds are going to congregate together. They're going to establish their own synagogues. They're going to be funding this, all this stuff, okay? What's interesting here and why I had you circle Cilicia, who comes from Cilicia? Extra credit, anybody? Where is Cilicia? Come on, engage. I don't want you guys falling asleep this morning. Asia Minor. Who came from Asia Minor? Who's really famous that came from Asia Minor? Paul. Tarsus is the capital of Cilicia. Stephen is engaged in his culture, in his life. He's engaged in this particular synagogue. At this particular synagogue, more than likely, Saul is engaging with Stephen. And Stephen, as he is preaching the gospel, he is obedient and submitted to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He's responded. He believes. He's engaged in following his Lord. He's engaged in preaching the message. He's engaged in serving his brothers and sisters. He's engaged in the desire that his countrymen would know Jesus as the Messiah. And he's there at this particular synagogue and he's sharing. And as he's sharing, there's debate and there's argument going on. That's not true. And as he is speaking to them, he's speaking in love, he's speaking in boldness, he is speaking the divine words that the Holy Spirit is leading him to speak in these conversations. On the other side, the opposition that is coming against Stephen is Saul. How do we know that for sure? We're not going to get into it this week, but at the end of chapter 7, at the end of Stephen's sermon that he preaches, and they pick up stones to throw at his head, it says that the clothes are laid down at the young man Saul's feet. As Stephen is getting stoned, there is Saul casting his vote. Because Saul, more than likely, is one of the men that is standing in opposition. But in this position of not being able, not having the power, not having the strength to stand in opposition to the witness against Stephen. Because Stephen is standing in his Lord. He is standing in faith and trust. He is standing in the power that is being given to him. He is preaching with boldness the message of who Jesus Christ is and the same accusations that came against Jesus, that he is violating the traditions of Moses and he's violating our Hebrew culture and uh, the traditions and the commandments that Moses has given to us. He's speaking against the temple. This is blasphemous language. So the same accusations that came against Jesus... Satan regurgitates the same argument and these same accusations are coming against Stephen. Last sentence. As we get introduced to Stephen in chapter 8, we'll see a little bit of Philip. This whole scene is a transition from not just the persecution of the religious leaders. Here in verse 12, it says that uh, they stirred up the people. 
This is the first time that we see the people in general being stirred up in opposition against Jesus as the Christ and against his followers. This chapter is leading us to the great persecution that's going to come in chapter 8 to where the attention is not just going to be focused in the book of Acts and God's work that he is doing in Jerusalem, but we're going to watch it expand into Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth that he said in chapter 1. As Stephen is standing in his Lord, as Stephen is engaged in conversation with these people who are in opposition to him, as he has been seized and arrested, and now he is the one who is brought before the Sanhedrin, the council, as they are looking at him, it says that they see a face that's like the face of an angel. What do you think the face of an angel looks like? You know, you think he's got that bitter, angry, crunched up face, like, I can't believe you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. The face of an angel. Peace. In this moment, being held on trial because he loves the God who created him, because he loves the God who saved him from his sin and from his death. Because of the spirit that he has received, that he's looking at the building of the temple, God doesn't dwell in buildings made with man's hands. God dwells right here in the heart that he created and the heart that he's transforming. The face of an angel preaching love, peace, boldness, confidence, assurance, hope. We're going to watch his sermon next week, the message that he preaches and conveys, and he has hard things to say, especially at the end, where the hearers, they stop their ears, and they throw stones at his head at the end of his message. I've preached some doozies. You've never thrown stones in my head. Thank you. But he's standing before him, standing, not in his own power, not in his own strength. He's standing in Jesus. And this is where we're going to end this morning because it's talking about that he's filled with faith and he's filled with wisdom. I'm just going to read through this. This is, a, this is my prayer for myself. This is a prayer for our congregation. Here Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians. This begins in 1 Corinthians 8. The message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross it is the power of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and not only wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. All right, worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, and we want to give you thanks this morning just for the testimony that we have in your word as we sit there and and look at the, the problems that arise in your body. There's always things that are missed, uh, that are off. There's things that we do intentionally, Lord, that'll be of the flesh. There's things that we just miss sometimes because our eyes aren't open. Sometimes we're grumbling in our hearts and in our tents, and sometimes we're grumbling amongst each other. Sometimes we sit in arguments and debates that are not profitable, Lord. But you, Lord, you are the constant. You are present in our midst. And as you are present, Lord, we know that you are the one who takes care of our daily needs individually, and our daily needs as the gathered body of Christ. We're asking, Lord, through your Holy Spirit that you'd cause us to be attentive to one another as brothers and sisters. Lord, if there's anyone here that calls Calvary Alpharetta their home, Lord, that feels like that they're on the outside culturally or socially, that you'd place them on our minds and our hearts, Lord, and that we'd specifically seek them out to minister to them, to esteem them, to value them, to honor them. That as brothers and sisters, Lord, that we wouldn't stand in the strength of our might and in our name, but that we would stand in you, Jesus, and the power of your might, the same power that rose you from the grave, the same power, Lord, you dwell in us. We're asking you, Lord, we're petitioning you that you give to each one of us your Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us with the fullness of God, that we would be obedient to the faith, 
to your name, Jesus, to your heart, to your character, that we would come boldly to your Father and to our Father through you with our praise, with our thanksgiving, with our angst, with our pain, with our struggles, with our needs. We'll trust, Lord, that you provide for our daily needs. We'll trust, Lord, that you will provide for our daily words. Through all that we do, bring glory to yourself. And may you give to each one of us, Lord, that face of an angel, that face of a soul that is spent, intimate, close, personal, time with you in your presence. May you cause us to radiate and to diffuse Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.